0: Well, let's turn our attention now to God's Word. Open with me uh, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, this is a safe place to learn how to read and study it. If you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version that we use, there are copies available in the lobby. Uh, You can feel free to make your way over there at any time and grab one. You can also just punch in Acts 12 ESV on your mobile device. And follow along that way. You will want to have the passage in front of you. We're covering a full chapter today. Well, last week, if you were here, Acts chapter eleven, we were we were treated to a, a portrait of the pioneer church. The pioneer church out in Gentile territory in Antioch, the church we find is growing. Christianity, which which appeared to be a Jewish sect, was was spreading among Greeks and other non Jews. So after panning his camera out into the, the, the wild, wild west, our author Luke pans back to Jerusalem in chapter 12. The original church, the mothership, where the very disciples who walked with Jesus were living and ministering. And what we find in Jerusalem is quite a contrast with what we found in Antioch. It was aptly described by one commentator as a deteriorating situation deteriorating situation is what we're about to read about and if you too this morning feel that you are in a deteriorating situation this passage contains much to encourage you so follow along with me in your Bibles read all 25 verses of Acts chapter 12 and then I'll pray Acts 12 verse 1 About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, verse 4, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And sentries were before the door, guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. When they'd passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12 When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Verse 18, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord and Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Very words of God addressed to us. This morning, let's pray for understanding. Lord, we ask you now to give what you alone can give. True knowledge of your word. Not just knowledge for our minds, but knowledge for our hearts. Personal knowledge about you, who you are, how you deal with your people, how you deal with the world at large. This passage reveals these things to us. It pulls back the curtain and shows us what's really going on. So I ask now, Lord, that you would enlighten our minds by the power of your Spirit. That you would warm our hearts by the power of your Spirit. That you would, for those who do not yet know you, unite people to your Son, through the preaching of the gospel, by the power of your spirit, here in this room today. We ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever feel like the odds are stacked against you? You ever feel like the odds are stacked against you? Hollywood loves to make movies about underdogs, where an individual or team snatches victory from the jaws of defeat, and there are so many epic movies that follow that story arc. But one of my favorites, personal favorites, has to be the 1993 Disney comedy, Cool Runnings. Story about four Jamaican bobsledders who dream of competing in the Winter Olympics despite never having seen snow. Not only had they never seen snow, they had no experience in cold weather or with bobsledding. Their coach was a disgraced Olympian. They were unfocused and bickered with one another. Olympic committees and even some of their own family members opposed them and what they were trying to do. My, their circumstances were not ideal. The odds were stacked against them. You might think that that's... A strange position to be in. But that's actually true to life. I mean, how often for you are circumstances ideal? Never. Circumstances are never ideal, and, and we all feel deep down that we'd have a better shot if they were, right? We, we often blame our difficulties on the bad hand we've been dealt. Conditions are not ideal. In fact, it's worse than that. Life is often a mess, Maybe you've come here this morning and that is how you would describe your life. My, my life's a mess. Well, I think you would find some friends in Acts chapter 12 who would say the same thing. Our life, our church, our circumstance here in Jerusalem, it's a mess. But here's the good news. Here's, here's the picture that Luke paints for us this morning. Our mess, our mess is God's masterpiece. Our our mess is God's masterpiece. That's, That's the story of Acts chapter 12. What appears messy and backwards and all out of sorts to us is, in fact, God's perfect plan playing out. Let me show you this from our passage. Four headings, four points. I'll give them to you as we go. How is God making a masterpiece out of our mess? Point number one he's directing adversity he's directing adversity the opening verses of chapter 12 give us whiplash after reading the end of chapter 11 again where the church is growing and prospering in antioch all of a sudden it's different verse 1 about that time which that was when barnabas and paul were sent by the antioch church again if you remember chapter 11 barnabas and paul sent by the antioch church to bring relief money to the jews in jerusalem about that time herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church It simply means he sought to injure and hurt christians now This Herod is the grandson of the Herod who ruled when Jesus was crucified. He's a puppet king. He serves at the pleasure of the Roman emperor, and he needs to keep his territory under control, or the Romans will do it for him, and in doing it for him, they will get rid of him. So the unrest in the city caused by Christians becomes his his main campaign, and he leads a persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Verse 2 he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And then, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This is helping his cause. And the murder of James appears just to be the symbol of the persecution. Other Christians were probably imprisoned, beaten, killed. But the high point is the murder of James, who is one of Jesus' original twelve disciples. The first apostle to be martyred. A huge blow to the Christians in Jerusalem. We should not just zoom by verse 2. This was a huge blow to our ancient brothers and sisters. Not only was James an important leader, certainly, but likely a close friend. He probably led many of these believers to Christ and, and pastored them. His death was both deeply grieving to them personally while also being terribly frightening. And as if that isn't bad enough, Herod, inspired by the response he gets, now arrests Peter with plans to execute him, right? A mess right out of the gate. Now, you already know the end of the story. I spoiled it for you by reading it to you ahead of time. Peter's not going to die here, but we should pause and ask just for a moment, why is God letting things get so bleak? Why is he letting his leaders and followers get killed into prison? And moreover, why do James and Peter have different fates? Why did James lose his life and Peter gets to keep his? Well, our author Luke provides no answer to that question. And in fact, one commentator, David Peterson, perceptively observed that without explanation, one apostle is executed and another is rescued. And listen to this comment, very perceptive. Teaching the church to live with the mystery of God's providence and to rely afresh in each situation on the mercy and continuing care of God. Why did James die here? For God's purposes. Why did Peter live here? For God's purposes. That's as close to an answer as we can get. Whether we die, whether we live, it's for the Lord. And so don't try to figure out God's providence. There's no key to unlock it. Some knowledge belongs to God alone. And he isn't obligated to share it. My my kids often ask me why they can't have ice cream every night. And I've tried to explain to them what overconsumption of processed sugar will do to their bodies over time. But for some reason, at seven and four years old, they just don't get it. They keep asking me for more. They're not ready for that level of complexity. And all they need to hear right now is, it's not good for you. Trust your dad on this one, and you'll understand later. That's what they need to know. How true that is for us, too, those seeking a childlike faith. Look, we will all suffer differently, okay? This is a room filled with people that are all suffering differently. Some of us may die untimely deaths, like James. Some of us will live long, relatively comfortable lives. Some of us will be relatively healthy. Some of us will limp along with chronic health problems. We can wonder why. We can ask God why. But ultimately, we need to hear him say to our hearts, I have good reasons for it. Trust your father on this one, and you'll understand later. He's shaping the contours of our lives, both the pleasant and unpleasant parts with perfect skill, perfect wisdom, accomplishing a perfect plan. He's directing our adversity, even when it seems imbalanced. And even the most painful experiences we endure will turn out in the end to be master strokes in his masterpiece. He's directing our adversity. Point number two. He's working miracles. He's working miracles. This should require very little explanation from the text, but this is the bulk of this passage miraculous divine intervention. The Apostle Peter has already been broken out of prison by an angel in the book of Acts, if you remember back to chapter 5. And it actually appears that Herod and his guards knew about his previous jailbreak because they go overboard to secure him in the prison. Verse 4 says he was delivered over to four squads of soldiers. Four squads of four soldiers each, 16 in total. One preacher with 16 armed guards. A little overkill. And we know Herod's intention is to execute Peter because of the phrase that follows that. He intended, it says, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people, hand him over to the people. And handing him over to the Jews would have brought about a similar fate that Peter's master faced when Pilate handed Jesus over to the Jews. They would have demanded his execution. Now, Luke gives us a time frame here. Feast of Unleavened Bread... Going to bring him out after the Passover. Peter's in prison for about one week. A long week. A very long week in prison for him and for the church. In fact, the church gets so desperate. Verse 5, look there with me. So Peter was kept in prison, but here's the church. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That word, earnest, is the same word that Luke uses to describe Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as he agonized over his impending crucifixion and death. They're not just shooting up flares. They're agonizing their prayers for Peter. Broken hearted by the loss of James. Broken hearted by the loss of other brothers and sisters hurt or killed in the persecution. They are desperate for God to spare Peter. Look, and there's nothing wrong with being desperate. In fact, God put them in this desperate situation and God puts us in desperate situations as well to teach us to trust him. He's doing that here. He puts us in the middle of problems only he can solve. Look, if you ever hear yourself saying, there's nothing I can do to fix this, that's not a problem. It just means the Lord is the answer and that it's time to follow the example of the church and bow our knees in prayer, giving ourselves to earnest prayer. That's verse 5, and the next 14 verses are God's answer to that prayer. Luke continues describing his predicament before he gets to the the answer in verse 6. It's the 11th hour, the night before Herod is going to bring Peter out to hand him over to the people who will have him killed. God could have done this at any point in the week, but he waits until the 11th hour. And so, Peter, here we find him. What's he doing? Second half of verse six. Peter is sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Notice again how neurotic they're being about guarding this nonviolent prisoner. They're making him sleep between two soldiers. They have him in iron manacles. There's sentries posted at the door. They're taking no chances. Humanly speaking, they have done all that they can to keep Peter from escaping. And Luke is just driving that point home. They have done everything humanly possible to keep Peter in prison. And the implication then is that only God can save Peter from this predicament. That's why the level of detail. And God does it. Peter's rescue is divine entirely. Verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. Okay, first sign that it's God working here. An angel shows up and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands (laughs) unexplainedly. The guards are awake, but they don't appear to notice the angel or the light shining. They don't appear to hear his instructions to Peter. Somehow, the Lord keeps them from noticing any of the stuff that, at least according to Luke, happened in plain sight. Now, I've, there are all kinds of things that are funny in this passage, and they're meant to be seen as funny, like the fact that Peter doesn't wake up When an angel shining a bright light shows up in his prison cell, he's still asleep. The angel has to wake him up. (laughs) It says says he struck him, which sounds kind of like he punched him or something, but no, no, he tapped him awake. He had to wake, he had to shake and wake him up. Apparently, Peter's not a morning person, he's moving a little slow. And then he tells him to get dressed, put on his sandals. It's kind of like, I don't know, maybe some of you had this experience this morning, like a parent trying to get their child ready for church. But without the angelic help, you didn't have an angel helping you. How many times do I have to tell you to put your shoes on? That's basically the, the exchange with him and the angel. Get your shoes on, man. We gotta go. Wake up. Now in verse 8, the angel tells Peter something that escaped my notice for a while. Verse 8, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, this is notable, and here's why. We know by now that Peter doesn't need a cloak to hide himself. The Lord is somehow disguising everything that's happening, so he doesn't tell him to put his cloak on to hide himself from the guards, right? It's not necessary. Why does he tell him to put on his cloak? I think, plain as day, this is a sign of God's care. He didn't want Peter to be cold. That's the most reasonable explanation. He didn't want Peter to be cold. It's the middle of the night or very early in the morning. and Yet, even in the midst of this dramatic rescue, the Lord is tending to Peter's most basic needs and comforts. A tender moment tucked right in there. we can be sure he's doing... The same for us. Okay, verse 9. Now we get some insight on Peter. He went out and followed him, but Peter didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, thought he was seeing a vision. This must be a dream or vision. This can't be real. I'm sure Peter's been praying for the Lord to rescue him, but when it's actually happening, he can't believe it. And who could believe that? I, I sympathize with him. In verse 10, they walk past the guards undetected. They walk through a gate which magically opens itself. I don't know if you noticed that. This wasn't a fancy electric gate with a sensor that detects you and automatically opens. No. The point, God opened the gate for Peter and just let him walk right out. And then when the angel's job is done, he disappears. In verse 11, Peter finally makes sense of what's happened. Now, he says, now, After all that, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. He Finally gets it. The light goes on in his mind and he sees, okay, this isn't just a vision. This has really happened and it is the Lord's doing. He has done a miracle, a series of miracles. Out of all the comedy in this passage, I think we're getting to the funniest part now. Peter goes, we find, verse 12, to the home of a woman named Mary. Presumably Peter knew that Christians would be there. He knocks on the door and announces himself, but the servant girl gets so excited when she hears his voice that she leaves him at the door and runs to tell the others. He's just been bust out of prison. He's got his cloak wrapped around him, so at least he's warm standing at the door, knocking. It's a good thing the angel had him grab his cloak, I'm telling you. (laughs) The Christians in the house don't believe her. Verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Not only do they not believe her at first, they engage in an argument with her, So think about this. Peter is standing at the door now. Two minutes, three minutes. How long does their argument go on for? I don't know, ten minutes? He's just standing out there in the cold night air. He didn't believe he was being rescued. And now the, the people who love him don't believe he has been rescued either. It was so improbable that this would happen that they couldn't actually believe it. They couldn't actually believe that God had answered their prayer even though we have 14 verses explaining how God answered it, they couldn't believe it. Can you relate? I can. I often pray, much to my embarrassment, I often pray with little faith that God will actually answer. I would probably be surprised and in disbelief if God answered some of my prayers as well. Once they finally say, fine, we'll go check the door to prove that you're wrong. They find Peter standing there and the text says, they're astonished. Astonished. Amazed. Peter doesn't hang around. He zooms out of there. Obvious reasons. Look, Peter and the Christians in Jerusalem needed a miracle. They needed a miracle. And God gave them one. Look, it's not bad to need a miracle. What actually can be bad is not recognizing that that's what we need. To keep thinking that in some situations it's all riding on us, that that if I just had a little more grit, or a little more insight, or more determination, or more creativity, or more money, I could fix it. But that's not reality. So much of what you and I face is beyond our ability to solve. We can't change hearts, our own or anybody else's. We can't control people or circumstances, ultimately. We can't heal the sick. We can't ensure the safety of those we love. We can't stop those we care about from making poor decisions. So much is out of our control and this means that we will often be in messy situations where we need divine intervention in fact daily we are in situation where we need divine intervention and so I want to ask you to consider what are you facing right now what's in front of you right now that you know is beyond your power to fix what are you facing right now that you know is beyond your power to fix You're depressed by it. You're angered by it. You're hopeless about it. No amount of scheming or planning or money will make this problem go away. Only the Lord can fix it. There's a thousand things like that in your life. I'm asking you to call one just to mind. You need, I need God to do what only He can do. We need all kinds of miracles. We need all kinds of miracles, including the great miracle of regeneration, being brought from death to life by the power of the Spirit and united to faith by Jesus. All of you who believe in Jesus have experienced the best miracle. But we need more. That's not a bad place to be. It's normal to need a miracle. It's normal to need divine intervention. God will determine and do it when the time is right. Our job is to ask earnestly, persistently, without giving up. And one day, too, oh, if we persevere, one day, too, we will be in disbelief when we see how the Lord has answered every one of our requests. He's working miracles every day. Point number three. How's he making our mess into a masterpiece? He's ruling nations. He's ruling nations. Can't escape it in this passage. The national and political landscape may look like it's in disarray, but... Rest assured, God is on his throne. He's ruling with perfect power and wisdom. That point is made very poignantly right here in our passage. In verses 18-19, we find that King Herod has killed the guards who he thinks are responsible for Peter's escape. But Herod isn't going to last much longer. That account at the end, 4 verses 20-23 through 23, Uh, This account that Luke gives us was also recorded by Josephus, who was an ancient uh, Roman Jewish historian. He lived and worked during this time, and his account matches Luke's along with some additional details colored in. But this is a matter of historical record. In a dispute with two cities, which depend on Herod for food, Herod takes the opportunity to assert his authority. And it appears that he's going to give these two towns, who he does not like, the peace that they're asking for. So he gets in his regalia, he gets nice and dressed up, and he delivers a speech to them. And then to flatter him and stoke his ego, the people respond by saying, verse 22, the voice of a God and not of a man. That's quite a compliment. I'm pretty sure nobody's going to be saying that to me after this sermon. I hope you don't, and I would discourage you from doing it anyway, but I don't think you'll be tempted. (laughs) It was common in the ancient world to see a king as divine, but that shouldn't have been so in Israel. We need to feel the offense here that the Lord takes. Shouldn't have been this way in Israel. Herod was the Jewish king. The people should have known better than to declare him a god, and he should have known better than to receive their praise, but he basks in it. He loves it. He soaks it up. And immediately, God intervenes, not to save Herod, but to judge him. Josephus' account says that in the middle of the ceremony, he became ill, which is Luke's way of saying that is immediately an angel struck him down. He became ill, took to his bed, and in five days, He passed away. Luke's attention, of course, is on God's role. Verse 23. An angel of the Lord struck him down. The explanation, because he did not give God the glory. A sobering, cautionary tale for anybody who goes on opposing the rightful rule of the Lord. The point couldn't be any clearer god rules god rules even over the most wicked rulers over the herods of the world now i'm i'm sure if you're like me politics are a source of great anxiety right source of great anxiety but take this to heart no matter how messy politics gets even on a global stage god's glory and his authority are never in danger of being usurped god in fact often patiently endures bad leaders and bad governments even using them for his purposes somehow mysteriously but at the time he determines he will bring them into proper submission And of course, I pray and hope you join me in praying. Expect that you join me in praying that God would bring our leaders to repentance and into submission in a gracious way rather than having to do it like this. But we too will have to patiently endure bad leaders and bad governments. Part of living in a world like ours. So sovereign grace, but let us not fall into the trap of subtly believing that the nations are for some reason not in God's hands, that his authority has some kind of limit. Oh no. God has it under control, and no matter what any government or dictator does, ultimately you and I have nothing to fear, not even death itself. Politics and society may be a mess. Come on, they are a mess, Right? But God's masterpiece is not in jeopardy. He is guiding history right where it needs to go. All the nations are in his hand. From the most stable democracy to the most cruel dictatorship. God guides the nations. And we need to let that great truth be an anchor in our souls and our hearts as political landscape just keeps changing keeps getting messier and messier and more concerning point number four what else is god doing in the midst of the mess (laughs) he's saving souls saving souls Luke uses the death of Herod to set up a contrast with something that does not die. This man died, but, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod breathed his last, but but the word of God kept going shorthand for the gospel the announcement about jesus christ this verse 24 is one of luke's many summary statements it signals a shift in the book of acts and it's a summary of more than just acts chapter 12 it's a summary of the last few chapters that's his one sentence summary of these last few chapters the word of god increased and multiplied and while that is true of more than just Acts chapter 12. It includes Acts chapter 12, where there is no account of how the gospel was spreading in Jerusalem. There appears to be nothing good happening in Jerusalem for Christianity. But Luke's report is that the gospel increased and multiplied. What happened here in Acts 12? Didn't stop the gospel at all. God's mission, we find, is moving along just fine, even in the midst of a terrible mess. His mission is to build his church. That's what he's doing. He's he's saving a people for himself by forgiving their sins through the death of Jesus Christ and then uniting them to him by faith and giving them a hope beyond just this world, beyond just the circumstances, beyond the mess. And that mission isn't compromised at all. In fact, it's being accomplished. That's verse 24. Luke doesn't want us to lose sight that even though things are upside down in some cities where there are Christians, it is not slowing down God's saving purposes at all. From our perspective, from where we stand. Jerusalem here looks like a mess. Our lives look like a mess. But from God's perspective, every stroke is a necessary part of his redemptive masterpiece. Even the suffering and death of his people, even in the midst of that, God is busy saving souls. The gospel is that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die in our place for our sins, rise from the dead to give eternal life to all who believe, and Jesus' death was not in vain. Jesus will have the prize for which he died. He will. He will have the prize for which he died. And that prize, surprise, it's us. (laughs) We're his blood-bought people. His mission to grow and establish that people can't be stopped, even when it appears like everything is against us. Our mess is his masterpiece. So, even if we're killed like James, the progress of the gospel is not. Even if we're in prison like Peter, the gospel is not in prison. <laughs> Even if we're, if we're laid up with sicknesses and weaknesses, the gospel is not. Even if we live under leaders and politicians who oppose Christianity and do everything they can to stamp it out, the growth of the gospel cannot be stopped by men. The Apostle Paul wrote it memorably in 2 Timothy 2. He wrote, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Sound familiar? But he finishes, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. My friends, Paul's charge is our charge. When your life is a mess, When you feel like you're screwing it up, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Remember the mess he was in, the Son of God, rejected by men, spit on, abused, tortured, crucified. Remember him. Remember that that mess was God's masterpiece of redemption. And if that mess was his masterpiece, oh my, then every mess we find ourselves in will turn out in the end to be a part of this beautiful portrait of redemption that he is just faithfully, day by day, painting. Look, he's, he's got us. He's got you. He's going to keep you. And, and in the end, when that final portrait of history is unveiled, we will rejoice at all that he's done for us, all that he's brought us through. Not one part of it wasted. Also seek him for fresh mercy and continuing care today. We pray that we would. Lord, it's easy for us to admit that our lives are messed up. And not just, not just the circumstances outside of us that we can't control, but even the things inside of us. Our own hearts, which regularly deceive us and seek to lead us astray. Leading us to trust in things that aren't trustworthy. Trustworthy trying to get us to worship anything but you. Our hearts are a mess. And so, Lord, we, again, entrust them to you. Would you make sense out of our messy lives? Would you give us confidence today that the big obstacles that we're facing are no match for you? And that we can rightfully, wisely put our trust in you, pray to you, wait for you, and that that actually is the best place to be in a world like this. So Lord, I pray for me, for my friends, I'll help us to hold fast to you. For we know that you are the one holding fast to us.